we have, if you like, finally arrived at the beginning, uh, the first commandment, because for those who are maybe visiting tonight, what we've actually been doing is doing them in reverse order. So we started with commandment number 10 and worked our way toward the first one. But last week, uh, we thought about the dangers of idolatry and uh, the creation of make-believe gods or, or false gods. And we also, we also did look at the idea of, of a false idea of God being a form of idolatry. Whereas this evening, as, as we actually finish this series, we reach the very first command, which was, deals with the importance of the one true God. And last week, in some ways, because some people often say, well, what, what is the difference between the first and second commandment? That's a, that's a fair question. But last week, in some ways, was about what you shouldn't worship, whereas tonight is about who you should worship or who we must worship, who we were actually created to worship, who deserves our worship. And this first commandment makes it very clear that that God needs to be the focus, that there there should be no substitutes. In fact, I think one of the definitions we gave last week of an idol is the substitute focus of our worship. Whereas when we come to this first commandment, what we're really saying is there should be absolutely no substitutes for God And in a sense, what this commandment actually does is it reminds us that the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. And what is the main thing? Well, the main thing is our worship of God. God needs to be at the very core of our worship, at the center. God, if you like, as a priority. God as number one, not only in our lives, yes, but also in every single area and compartment of our lives. And so God says, you shall have no other gods before me. And because this is the first commandment, and arguably the most important one, what that actually clarifies for us and makes clear is that you cannot remove God. You can't take God out of these laws of love that have been set in stone. Despite the fact, and this I find really interesting, despite the fact that some people do try to take God out of them and still present them, There are those who have suggested that you you could teach these or you could certainly teach the vast majority of them without actually mentioning God. That you could run a series and build a credible case for promoting these commandments, many of them, the vast majority of them, as just common sense guidelines for life. So, you don't need to mention God. Don't murder. Don't steal. Don't lie, rest, take time out once a week, respect your parents, don't covet, don't have an affair. Most people would say, yeah, those, those make a lot of sense, don't need to mention God. And you can see where they're coming from. But the problem is that you have this, this very first commandment. And not only have you this, but you've the two verses that run up to this. And we'll come to those in a moment. Because what it says here is, listen, they all start with God. This means that the proposed perspective of saying, listen, you can do the Ten Commandments without reference to God, at least the vast majority of them, it's actually nonsense. It doesn't have mileage. Because what this first commandment makes very clear is, listen, these are God's Ten Commandments. You can't just say, these are the Ten Commandments. These are God's Ten Commandments. Commandments, And they only make sense if you see God behind them or if you see God at the heart of them. And in fact, if you take God out, 
then they don't really make a lot of sense. Because the reason it says, for example, don't murder, is because what you're doing there is you're taking away from a person the very thing that God gave them, and that is life. So you've got to see it from that perspective. The first commandment, in a sense, what this one does, actually, it gets us off on the right footing as we journey through the rest. Someone has said, it, it aligns or it realigns your thinking. It sharpens your mind. It acts as a kind of filter. If you come to this commandment and read this and see this and grasp this and believe this, then that acts as a kind of filter through which you see the rest of the Ten Commandments. But if you get this one wrong, if you get this one confused, or worse still, if you ditch it all together then you're going to run into all sorts of problems with the rest of the Ten Commandments. So if God is number one, if you can get this one, if God is the sole focus of your worship, then the rest of the ten actually make sense. Because your tendency to steal, your tendency to lie, your tendency to dishonor your parents are bound to be influenced if God is actually at the center of your life. Whereas if he's not, then what do you use as a filter? What do you use as a reference point for all of those things? If you take God out of his rightful place, out of right at the center of your life, then your values, your morals will start to unravel, will start to fall apart. So the first commandment, if you like, acts as a vivid reminder that the main thing is to keep the main thing, the main thing. And what is the main thing? The main thing is worship of God and him as number one. But if you come to this first commandment as it is, you shall have no other gods before me, then the obvious question to ask is, well, well, who exactly is me? I mean, if you just start here and you present this as the first commandment, Exodus 20, verse 3, shall know other gods before me or besides me. Who is me? Who is it that actually wants to be at the center of our lives? And why does this person, this God, deserve to be there? And for me, that's why it is really, really important that we do start a little further back, that you don't start a series on the Ten Commandments at Exodus 20, verse 3, but that you rewind to the previous two verses. Because there you discover, well, this is actually who gives us the commands. This is where you get an insight into the nature and the character of the one who offers them, the one who urges you to put them into place in your life. Well, who is this one? Exodus 20, 1 and 2 are vital in our thinking because these two verses, if you like, disclose who it is that is giving us these. And it says this. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And then you go on to read verse 3. And what you find here is, is God is in a sense telling the people, telling the Israelites, listen, this is who I am. This is my identity. This is who is giving you these commandments And as we all know, and we've said it many, many times, that having a right concept of God is incredibly, incredibly important. Now, obviously, this is not, if you like, an exhaustive description or a vast introduction to God. And even if we were, struck me, even if we were to stay here all night and kept talking, we wouldn't cover everything there is to know or imagine about God. 
And, and just in that, I, I love the story of St. Augustine, who is, as he reflected on the greatness and the bigness and the vastness of God, there's a story that says he, uh, he fell into a sleep and he had a dream. And in a dream, he saw this little boy on a beach down at the water's edge, scooping up the ocean in a thimble and pouring it out on the sand behind him. And in his dream, Augustine then heard an angel tell him that this little boy will have emptied out the entire ocean long before anyone could possibly have exhausted all there is to say about God. God is that big. He's that vast. He is that great. And so although these couple of verses, if you like, only capture a fraction of who God is, they still are very, very important in setting the context for the Ten Commandments in revealing who this God is that gives them to us. And so it starts, and God spoke all these things. So immediately you know that the me in that first commandment is God, but it's a God who speaks. A God who speaks. And that, as many of you will know, is a direct reference to God as creator. There's echoes here of of Genesis chapter 1. And God said, let there be light. And God said, let there be water. And if you read that creation account, it's all about how God said and things happened God's words bring out the creative dimension of who God is. And so what happens here in this first verse in Exodus chapter 20, we discover that the God who wants to be number one in our lives is the God who actually gave us life. The God who wants to be at the center of life is the God who breathed life into us. Not only into us, but created everything we see around us. So this is a creator God who's saying you shall have no other gods before me. And then he says, I am the Lord, your God. And two weeks ago, if you were here, as we looked at the third commandment, we drew attention to the significance of the name of God. And we referred to this name, the Lord, which appears something like, and I don't know if I said that this night, but it appears something like 6,800 times in capital letters in Scripture or in our English translations of Scripture. And the Lord, whenever you see that, the Lord and Lord in capitals, it represents the personal name of God, Yahweh. And we made the point that night that in disclosing this name, what God was actually doing was he was revealing himself to those he had created. And so by giving himself a name, God, if you like, allows himself to be found. God makes himself known. I am the Lord. I have a name. The Lord, your God. So in other words, God takes the initiative. God steps towards. God proves that he's not remote. I'm not distant. I'm not distant. I'm not disconnected. I'm not aloof. I am the Lord. And I'm the Lord, your God. And a phrase like that just speaks about the personal nature of God. This is a God who seeks relationship. Who seeks intimacy. And for us, who also live in the reality that God hasn't just revealed himself in a name, but God has revealed himself in Jesus. God came and stood before us and lived amongst us in the flesh. And so the God who wants to be and deserves to be at the center of our lives, the God who says you shall have no other gods before me, is a God who wants to make himself known to people. To come alongside To show us who he is and to say, listen, a relationship with me is possible. There is access. 
And so the God who gives these Ten Commandments, the God who speaks them, is a God who is our creator. He is our maker. And he is a God who wants to be known. And finally then, it says this, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And so what God was saying is, listen, I'm a God who has already acted on your behalf. I am a God who has already been at work in your life. I've stepped into your mess. I've stepped into your situation and I've rescued you. I've rescued you as people from years of oppression and bondage and slavery. I've set you free. And whenever you read this, you discover that here is God revealing a really important part of who he is. That he is a redeeming God. He's a rescuing God. He is a delivering God. And therefore, surely that God, the God who has done this for these people, that God deserves to be right at the center of their lives. If that is who God is, then he deserves to be at the heart of their lives. And again, for us who live in light of Jesus, the one who came to take away the sin of the world, the one, the good shepherd who laid down his life for his sheep, God hasn't only redeemed us and rescued us and delivered us from a land or from human slave masters as he did for the Israelites, but Jesus Our God in Jesus has redeemed, rescued, and delivered us from hell itself. And therefore, a God who has done that, surely that God, that rescuing, delivering, redeeming God, deserves to be at the heart of our lives, at the core of our life. He deserves to ensure, or we need to ensure that there's no other gods before him. And so before we even get to the commandments themselves, in a sense, And before we get to the very first one, we discover that in comparison, every other God that we might care to worship just pales into insignificance. Because the one who gives us these ten commandments is our maker, our creator. The one who has made himself known to us and stepped into our mess and drawn alongside us. And he's also the one who's lifted us up out of that mess. He's redeemed us. He's rescued us. He's delivered us. Therefore, okay, you deserve my worship, God. And I think it's really important that we just come at the Ten Commandments from that perspective. It's just a thumbnail sketch, I know, but hopefully it helps create a clearer picture of who it is that gives them. But then let's look, in just the second part of what I want to say, let's look at this first commandment because, as I say, it is about worship. It is about our priorities. It is about what or who lies at the very center of our lives. And what the challenge this commandment brings is that that God needs to be first. We need to keep him at the center. If we're really going to grab hold of the other nine commandments, we need to start here and we need to make sure God is first in our lives. And what I want to do is I just want to think about how that works out practically or make some suggestions as how it might work out practically. And I want to look at five suggested areas where each of us can or should put God first. Areas where we can give God the priority. And I'm going to use uh, this word first as I hope a helpful reminder. And as I say, this is not an exhaustive list, but I think this captures lots of areas where really if we can put God first in these areas, then we will make sure we have no other gods before him. And the first is our finances. And money can, uh, can become a god, particularly in our materialistic and sort of consumerist society. But the Bible makes it really clear, listen, you can't serve two masters. 
Jesus put it like this, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other. Either you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And it is so easy to become a slave to money. It's so easy to become preoccupied, not only with money, but what money provides. And the danger is that if you do, that God then gets eclipsed, God then gets forgotten. And whenever the Israelites, because this is a great example of this, whenever the Israelites reached the promised land, they were faced with lots of temptations in all sorts of areas of life, but, but particularly in this one, I would suggest. And so God had to speak into their lives about this issue. And he said this, be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God failing to observe his commands, his laws, and his decrees that I'm giving you this day. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, and when your herds and your flocks grow large and your silver and your gold increase, and all that you have is multiplied, so in other words, you're doing really well, then your heart will become proud. And you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You see, money... And riches has that potential to cause us to forget God and to take up a place in our lives that actually God should reside. And it's not, and we know, again, it's not that money's the problem, it's the love of it that the Bible says. And we've got to love God. We can't love both God and money. It doesn't work that way. And so if we put God first in our finances, then that'll help us to keep our priorities right and our worship focused. The second area is our interests put God first in your interests you know hobbies and and sport and recreation they're all part of life a good part of life a healthy part of life but as with everything you've got to keep them in perspective and they can become a God and therefore we do need to maintain a balance and how do you look at this you need to maintain a balance in terms of the time that you invest in those the money that you spend or maybe even the sacrifices that you make in order to pursue those interests are there things suffering as a result. But if you put God first in your interests, then you protect your time. You guard your heart. And whenever Paul was writing to the Corinthians, he said, listen, whatever you, whatever you eat or drink, whatever you do, and I think this is a really great way to come at this as one area of life, whatever you do, including your interests, do it all for the glory of God. For me, that's what it means to put God first in your interests, as with everything else. Do it all for the glory of God. And when you, you grasp that your interests can be and should be an act of worship, which includes the way that you play sport or pursue and enjoy that hobby, and that particular hobby of yours, then you're for, far more likely to keep God at the center of your life if you see those things as acts of worship. Next, put God first in your relationships. And there's lots of levels to this, but to start with the obvious thing, your relationship with God has just got to come first. It's, it's got to be your priority. But what does that mean? I, mem- I remember whenever I uh, went off to train to be involved in youth work, uh, I remember a guy sitting me down and saying, listen, you, you need to get the balance right here. And your priority, David, is your relationship with God. That has got to come first before your relationship with anyone else. And then your other relationships fall into place after that. 
And it's, it's hard sometimes to know how, how does that actually look in, in practice and in day-to-day life that I'm putting my relationship with God first. I know that God has said, yes, and you've got to love me with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. In other words, you've got to love me with every fiber of your being. What, what does that mean? What does it look like for me to love God with my entire being? My heart, soul, strength, and mind. And therefore, how you actually nurture and guard and protect that relationship becomes critical. What, what are you doing? What am I doing to nurture that major relationship in my life? And then flowing on from that relationship comes all our other connections. And so putting God first in our relationships, that actually should influence or will influence, for example, our choice of friends. If God is at the center of our lives, that will influence who we choose to be friends with. It will also influence or should influence who we, who we choose to pursue a deeper relationship with if God's at the center. And thirdly, putting God first in our relationships will also actually affect the way that you relate to people. It'll affect your attitudes and your words and your actions because they will be different if God is at the center of your relationships. And so, for example, if God is first in the relationship you have with your parents or with your kids or your brothers, your sisters, your husband, your wife, then family life, married life, will be very different. If God is first in those relationships and in the way you relate to one another. So put God first in your relationships. Next, put God first in your schedule. What does that look like or mean? Well, it sort of connects back to one a moment ago. But for me, it does involve setting time aside to be alone with God. Setting time aside to actually invest and nurture this relationship with God where time is given to prayer and to reading and to reflection and to meditation and to silence and to confession and to all those holy habits that we looked at last year. That that's actually what it means to put God first in your shed, that you actually carve time out, and it is something you've got to do. You carve time out of busy schedules in order to put God first. And then once you've got that guarded and protected and that time spent with God, then everything else fits around that. And yet I know, and I've confessed this many times, I know that often everything else dictates my schedule other than time alone with God, which I know is so, so important for me if I'm going to keep God at the center of my life. So God needs to come first, if you like, in our use of time. And then finally, and I know you could think of lots of things for tea in our thinking, God needs to come first, but also in our troubles that when you actually face problems, when you deal with pressures, when you cope with crisis, when you confront suffering, putting God first means that you turn to him. That you know that God is your primary refuge and strength. God's not a last resort. But he is a very present help in times of trouble. That whenever life gets on top of you, whenever life begins to pull you apart, that you look to God that you actually trust in God, lean in God, that like David, you tell God your troubles. And like Peter says, listen, cast your cares on God because he cares for you. And what does that actually mean again? That means for me putting God at the center of my troubles, that I look to him. And if we aim, I suggest, if we aim to put God first in these five areas, and there could have been others we looked at, but if we aim to put God first in these five areas, then I believe we will guard against having any other gods beside him.
And as we finish and just before Wes comes to sing again, I want to use this prayer as a sort of response uh, to the first commandment and as a sense as a summary of what we have thought about tonight. Let me read this prayer to you and then give you a moment's silence. Uh, maybe just while Wes in the sense of this tunes and it's ready to sing. Okay, but I'll read it first and then create a moment's silence for you to pray it for yourself. Gracious and almighty God, I bow before you and you alone. You are the creator God, the maker of heaven and earth and the giver of life. You are the God who has revealed himself to us in name and in Jesus in order that we can know you. And you are the God who has rescued us from slavery to sin and from eternity in hell. I choose today to put you first in my finances, in my interests, in my relationships, in my schedule, and in my troubles. Fill me with the power of your Holy Spirit to anchor myself in you and follow you faithfully.